Welcome to another episode of Ceteris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast. I'm Christina Lascaridis, I'm based at SOAS, and I'm the co-host of this episode. And I'm Tiago Mata, I'm based at UCL, and um, we uh, want to talk to you about a book, A History of Economic Thought, written by Eric Roll. We've come across this book that seems to never die. It seems to recirculate and pop up in the most mysterious of places. So we're, we're dedicating this episode to trying to investigate what is it that makes this book interesting? What, why has this book survived? Why, why, why do some histories of economics become so popular? Yeah, and so what we did is uh, kind of each of us went our own ways and tried to you know, make sense of this. We looked at um, who the author was, um, a little bit about readers, um, trying to figure out who reads this, um, and trying to figure out a bit about the publisher, uh, Faber and Faber. And uh, what this episode is about is a conversation, a very informal conversation about what we found and what sense we can make of it. The great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. Christina, you looked up, so WorldCAD. So World, uh, if listeners don't know, WorldCAD is this resource that um, accesses catalogs all over the world, libraries all over the world. And we, if you go and type a history of economic thought, Eric Roll, you get an incredible list. In fact, the list is almost three pages long. And um, one of the most uh, interesting uh, aspects of the books that come up uh, under um, the entry of A History of Economic Thought by Eric Roll is how many editions, how many reprints, and how many languages this, books, this book has circulated in. Could you figure out how many languages? So we, have, we count five languages, English, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, and Chinese. I know there's one more, at least. So Goodreads is a, a website linked to Amazon, owned by Amazon, where people write book reviews. And these are the, there's about five of them, five book reviews of the book in Goodreads right now. And three are in Malay, complaining of, complaining about the language, that it's too hard. So in the World Cat list that I've drawn up, the book has five different editions. One of them is sort of a revised and enlarged edition where they... Uh, in 1942, Eric Roll revises it and adds in some chapters about the US. Um, and then you've got a third edition, a fourth and a fifth. The last one being in um, 1992. 1992, the one that we've got here with us today. Let me thump the book. <laughs> it is a mighty heavy tome, <laughs> as you can tell. As it should be. The UK, the main publisher is Faber. And P Faber. Um, the US publisher is Englewood Cliffs. Prentice and Hall. Prentice Hall, yeah. Uh, another interesting thing, even though the book is in English, it does circulate in Tokyo in Japan fairly re fairly early on in its career. Um, the first publication in Japan is in 56. It also circulates in English in Mexico uh, fairly early on in 1958 as the first time. Other Spanish editions are also centred around Latin America, um, in Mexico, in Argentina, in Colombia... Yeah, but so I wonder, because WorldCat gives you access to catalogs now, so if the book is too old, so imagine there's an edition of 
you know, in 1948. And the library has lost it, or it's, you know, decrepit. It's no longer in the catalogue. So while we're getting into snapshot of the surviving copies in searchable catalogues. Exactly. Yeah. So we can't really, so this is possibly the tip of the iceberg. Sure. Of how many editions and what languages it got. Mm-hmm. Um, Another quite interesting thing is that reprints of old editions keep emerging after newer editions are available. You might say in different in, in translation that makes sense. Uh, but even uh, with Faber and Faber in English, uh, reprints of older editions keep uh, being demanded and printed after latest, later editions have, have, have become available by the same publisher. So um, definitely by looking at the list of printed of years that the book uh, is demanded in print, uh, regardless of the edition that, that, that this is in, um, Faber and Faber prints this book, if not every year, every couple of years for sure, from, from the first date of publication. On the fifth edition, which is the one I have here, it's a universally library copy, it says, first published 1938, second impression 1939, second edition revised and enlarged 1945, reprinted 1946, 1949, 1950. Third edition, 1954, reprinted 1956 and 1961. New and revised edition, the fourth, 1973, reprinted 1978, 83, 87, and 90. And then the fifth edition, 1992. And of course, at each new edition, Eric copyright gets renewed. So without considering anything else, how could we answer the question of why is a book, why does a book survive 80 years in print? or almost 80 years in print? Well, one answer that comes to mind is to do about the book's content. Uh, so one might wonder, well, a book will survive because it's worth reading, because the content is still relevant, because people still want to read it. Yeah, well, we can't access the readers of the, the whole 20th century, right? So we can't use the readers. We have the Malay uh, readers at Goodreads that complain about the language of the book. But that's about the only kind of reader that you, you can access. Well, there's a book reviews. Well, we could talk about book reviews. Now, another possibility is that it's something to do with the author. The author is brilliant. And we could talk about the author. And, you know, Roll is pretty incredible <laughs> character. So it might be something about him. Although none of his other books was as successful. I'm surprised that this one was. Yeah, he has a long... He has got quite a wide um, publication history, also reviewed by notable um, figures. Um, but none of them seem to circulate or even leave much of the legacy behind them. Yeah. And I think he was surprised that this one did. I think he says so in, the, in his autobiography. But the, the third possibility is that it has something to do with the publisher and something to do with the distribution or with the market for books or something like that. Um, so shall we, shall we look into each of these? Sounds like a good plan. All right. So, Christina, you looked up the reviews. Any clue on why this book is so interesting? So I found a selection of quite interesting reviews over time. Quite a few well-known people uh, review the book. Uh, we've got Frank Knight. We've got um, Corrado Ginny, amongst a collection of other people. And um, I would say all of the reviews have quite a different flavor. Um, so we have those which are the reviewers who were falling asleep while they were writing the review, 
And no, we as, have, in, as in Frank Knight. As in Frank Knight. We have those who haven't got a moment to spare, like um, Checkland, who writes a two-line review alongside Schumpeter's um, History of Economic Analysis. What does he say? He's very, very brief. Let me just look it up. So it's a double review that Checkland makes uh, whilst at Cambridge of Schumpeter and, and Roll's book. Uh, he says it stands high among the general histories, um, and in its new edition is probably the best introduction on the market. This was uh, this was looking at the fifty four edition, and uh, one of the um, one of the points that he makes is that that this edition preserves the form of earlier editions, which is based on the conviction that changes in the economic structure of society are major influences on economic thinking. So we have a flavor of a, a materialist view of, of history. We've got a review by Fritz Karl Mann in the American Economic Review of 1942. It's quite a lengthy review. And I would say it's quite balanced. It, it has, a, it has a, a good amount of praise. Uh, it does state quite a lot of weaknesses, uh, omissions and errors. A quite frequent critique of the book is, is where does it start? Roll's book starts with the Old Testament, uh, going through uh, Roman and, and Greek philosophers, through the Middle Ages up to the present day, well, the present day being John Maynard Keynes. Some of the critiques that come out of this review, one is that the scope is vast. There are several critiques that, that this review makes. Huge omissions, uh, particularly from non-English speaking writers. Yeah, which is funny because Roll is not English. Well, I'll get to that later. Uh, and in particular, that one of the strongest critiques that come out that comes out is that Rawl lays himself open, and I quote here, to the further charge of relying too exclusively on the materialistic conception of history. Yeah, and yet he then says that the masterpiece is the long chapter on Marx. Nowhere does the author proceed with greater care and show deeper insight. So it is kind of mixed, isn't it? The other bit I liked about this review is this kind of apt statement of that Roll shows a certain taste for extravagant statements. We are told, for instance, that Petty is the founder of political economy, that Malthus was a reactionary and fought a rearguard action, that James's mill, Elements, was the last expression of unquestioning faith in the Ricardian school, and that Keynes represents a return to classical political economy. It is a book of sweeping statements, <laughs> to say the least. So, but not everyone liked the book. There's some really, I saw, I saw some really negative ones, negative reviews. Like Lewis Haney, that one's great. He starts with, the, the first line is, Roll's book is so clearly biased that any review that is not perfunctory must note this fact at the outset. That's, that's a good opening for a, for a book review. And then I think, is it, is it the final line? This book is not for students who lack well-developed critical capacities. So protect your young. Health warning. <laughs> I mean, the clearly anti-Marxist slant of the review uh, also comes out critically. So, you know, why does this book dedicate such a, such a substantial, well, a chapter? Um, the only chapter devoted to a single name is the one of Marx. The taxonomy of chapters, I would say, is quite interesting. Some of them are sort of thematic. Other ones are, you know, around people or schools. Um, so would it be helpful to 
give the table of contents at this point. So the first original table of contents was chapter 1, the beginnings, Old Testament, Greece, Romans, canon law. Chapter 2, commercial capitalism and its theory, mercantilism, bullionism, Thomas Munn. Chapter 3, the founders of political economy, Petty, Locke, North, Law, Hume, Cantillon, Stuart, the physiocrats. Chapter 4, the classical system, Adam Smith, Ricardo, then Malthus on population. Chapter 5, reaction and revolution, Malthus on accumulation, German romantics, socialist criticism. Chapter 6, Marx, a variety of things on life and sources. And chapter 7, the transition, the historical school, Jones, the breakup of labor theory of value, senior, mill. And finally, chapter 8, modern economics, marginal utility, the second generation. This is the original table of contents of 1938. So only one author gets a whole chapter, and that's Marx. Everyone else is grouped into these, I guess, chronological and thematic um, divisions. I was wondering, when it comes to negative reviews, um, how do you assess whether they're fair or not? I got the impression that Haney, who writes this uh, brutal critique, is also an author of, of a general book on That's history right. economics. He's a competitor. <laughs> Although I'm not, sure, I'm not sure, his book is from 1910s. I don't know if it's still in print when he writes that in the 1940s. If there was a, a pecuniary interest in that. <laughs> and the Frank Knight one is delicious because it's, it's it's so bored of reading the text. It's the most bland review that I've ever ever seen. Even if he's clearly he's he's negative about the book, he doesn't like the book, but he just doesn't even have the seem to have the energy to devote any anger towards it. So I think on the basis of the reviews, at least these ones, I've, there's a couple of also good ones and and complimentary ones. The the one by Roy Glenday of a later edition calls it an enlightened and skillful compiled history of economic thought that can be recommended to anyone desiring to obtain within manageable compass a general conspectus of the evolution of economic thinking. So there were some positive ones, but on on first evidence, uh, particularly these American ones, no one seems to like the book, or very few people seem to like the book that much. I want to add um, a funny aspect of Frank Knight's review. He adds a humorous point to to, to the ending, where he says, it's unusual to find an index open to criticism on the grounds of excessive completeness. But when there are topics of, with, with 150 or more page entries and dozens with over 50, and no indication as to which are important, the embarrassed richness ver verges on impoverishment. That's the closing of the review. Yeah. So we can see maybe he struggled. Yeah, well, kind of, yeah, that's, that's funny. It's it a, is it's funny. It's a back-of-the-hand back kind of... Slap. <laughs> so on, on readings of, of Roll, there's one, it's not a review, it's in a book, it's a posthumous book um, by an author called Werner Stark. So Werner Stark is actually, I think, I guess more better known as a sociologist, but he, he spent a few years at Cambridge and he, Keynes convinced him to edit the, the Jeremy, Jeremy uh, Bentham's economic papers. And he ended up writing a couple of histories of economics. And in his later years, he wrote a book called uh, Historians and History of Political Economy, and he makes a distinction between three genres in the history of economics. A critical approach, which he associates, and uh, under, the, under that heading, he puts people like Schumpeter and Marx that have a kind of a 
perspective on the history and want to impose it on uh, some kind of order on, on the historical record. A descriptive approach, which is more kind of wanting to give, give an idea of the atmosphere of the ideas and where they kind of circulated. And an explore, ex explanatory approach. And here he lists people like Ingram, Haney, and Roll that want to explain ideas with reference to the period of their origin. And he says an incredible thing about the, this book. He says that Roll occupies the foremost position that the science has reached, that a really scientific treatment of the history of political economy must build consciously and consistently on the idea of causality. And, and it adds further on, this is the last word of science in our special discipline. Um, so the, the role is kind of, this book has, despite the sort of flaws that you get from the reviews, there's something about its in, intention, about its design, that wanting to give this sort of causal account of the history of economics that is actually rather distinctive and unique among the many histories that have been, of economics that have been written. Would you like to say whether you think trying to find causality of why certain ideas come about is is not a reasonable aim for the discipline? I, I wouldn't say it's not. I, you know, so so the final assessment of Stark is that it actually doesn't succeed because it's too it's too strong a program, it's too strong a thesis. Um, and this is what the others point out as sort of a Marxist materialist analysis that he tries to put put the origins of these somehow as always. A, kind of products of or embodiments of class ideologies. And, and, and Stark, for one, thinks that you can't really do that all the time. It's just not, not all of the social science comes from that one root, as he says it. Also, oh, Ginny um, reviewed it. Wow, okay. So what did he say? So Corrado Ginny's review is another brutal uh, critique, similar to the one by Lewis Haney. The opening line is you, that one doesn't understand how a serious scientist can write a history of economic thought without having read the author's texts in the original language. Should we hear that in Italian? Non si capisce come uno scienziato serio possa scrivere una storia del pensiero economico senza aver letto negli originali i testi degli autori fondamentali, almeno delle grandi lingue internazionali. Well, that's funny because, you know, he, he did read, but we first language was German, so he clearly did read European languages and he spoke French. So another question that this brings up is people are always going to have beef about who's in, who's out. And I wonder if that's always the fairest way to assess, you know, the quality of a work. You're every, someone's always going to have misgivings about who did you include or who did you exclude. And particularly when some of the criticisms are about how vast the scope of, a, of the book is. Where where is where is he going to draw the line? Yeah. Okay. So so maybe that's okay. This is just sort of a general complaint that you'd get, and particularly if you're an Italian economist reading a history of economics that has very little on Italian economists. I can I suggest maybe the the the, the stronger focus is to figure out this Marxist explanatory um, ambition, and see if we can figure out where that comes from, and maybe talk then. Maybe the next step is to talk a bit about how what we know about the writing of the book. So, so we know the book was written on a holiday. It was published in 1938. It was the holiday of nine, the summer of 1937. Um, so says the the autobiography, in the home of Jacob Bronowski. So, Roll. We haven't said anything about Roll. We'll say more later. But 
Uh, at this point, what's relevant is that uh, Roll was a uh, professor of economics at um, Hull University, and in that faculty was a mathematician trained at Cambridge called Jacob Bronowski, uh, who end up being, ends up being a very famous person in the UK, a broadcaster, for instance, who had a very famous BBC show called The Ascent of Man. And um, he's at Brunowski's home near Cambridge, and he's using Marshall Library to write this book, and he does that in a few weeks on a holiday without having any training or professional qualifications in, in the history of economics. Um, so this is an economist writing a history from, not even from notes, not even from graduate notes, just out of nothing, really, um, out of interest. And um, so we... Uh, besides writing an autobiography called Crowded Hours um, there's also a oral history at the, uh, deposited at the British Library um, on a collection called City Lives about the city of London and there's about five hours of oral history collected in between several sessions November 1992 to March 1993 and we have a few clips from those the first ones we want to show you are the ones about Birmingham and how he was uh, his economic training. What was his background in terms of economics? Birmingham, was, which was as red brick as can be, I mean, it literally it was red brick, but quite apart from that, it was one of the earliest of the red brick universities, and the Faculty of Commerce to which I went was the first Faculty of Commerce in the world, first sort of business school in the world. And but but it was in the middle of all the other faculties. This was one of the great advantages to me that here I was. I took some courses in the old Mason College as it was as it had started as the Mason College in the centre of the city in Edmund Street, which was where the arts faculty was and the medical faculty, oddly enough, because there's nobody hospitals. So you had on the one hand all the sort of intellectuals who were studying. Yes, Plowman and, and, and uh, Chaucer and, uh, and so on, together with these hearties in the medical faculty who spend all their time sweeping beer. And my main economics and commerce side, and also oil engineering, which I tried to study because I thought I might become an oil engineer, which I gave it up, but up in Edgbaston on the new campus uh, <coughs> with the engineers were also hearties, but of a very different type from the medicals. But to me, this was marvelous, because I didn't have to... I mean, I'm sure if I'd gone to Magdalen or Oxford or Magdalen Cambridge, for that matter, or whichever, I would have probably got stuck with people, only people, although colleges, of course, have people studying different things, but nevertheless, I'm sure I would have probably known nobody except economists. Because here, I, I was, you know, I'd been sweeping beer with the medicals one day and going out to some visit some factory with the engineers the next day and that kind of thing, which I found extremely interesting. How important was the teaching you received at Birmingham as far as forming your... Oh, it was tremendous. It was, I think, looking back on it, especially in view of some of the great problems about economics as a science, how it's to be taught, what it is, what it's designed for, what it can be made to achieve, what it can be made to serve, 
in the light of all that's going on now and these great ideological controversies, I think the training in Birmingham was absolutely great. Uh, it was, I mean, from the point of view of what now is regarded as strict economic theory with all the mathematical apparatus and so on and this kind of thing that wins Nobel Prizes now, it would probably have been regarded as rather second-rate because pure economic theory, although it was well taught, was on the whole rather limited and uh, rather traditional Marshallian, if that means anything to you, and in the tradition of Alfred Marshall of Cambridge and so on, the prevailing school. But it was totally non-ideological. There was no attempt to um, say that um, when Keynes appeared on the scene, we were we were able to, this was after, long after, I'd, when I was teaching, long after I stopped studying, I mean studying for a degree. Um, in Birmingham, this was just accepted. I mean, there was no, uh, no question of, uh, you know, proscribing this doctrine or that doctrine. But in addition to that, there was a tremendous amount of applied stuff, agriculture, industry, uh, visits to factories, studying location of industry, why is this particular steel mill where it is? Why has Willenald in the black country developed um, this very specialty of making locks? Most of the time really the place where all the locks in the world were made, etc., etc., that kind of thing. So it wasn't just pure supply and demand theory and all the rest of it of whatever kind, but there was all this other stuff. As far as I could understand, his PhD supervisor at Birmingham was a J.G. Smith, and he wrote a thesis on Bolton and Watt, um, which is the, the company, famous uh, James Watt. But it, the focus of that PhD was on uh, managerial practices within the, the company, so it was kind of a business history. So he was already kind of writing historical uh, material. It's, it's actually a rather interesting book. You would, one would think that this being Birmingham, where Sir William Ashley, a famous uh, economic historian, proponent of the sort of the his, historical economics school in, in, in Britain, with close connections to the German historical school, that that would be the kind of the, the flow of influence that shaped a book that has the sort of historiographical ambitions. But that doesn't seem to be it. And, and I think the kind of the crucial clue is kind of rather silly, Clue is the preface of the January 1938 uh, edition. So the preface of the original book, thanks, and I'm going to read that, thanks Mr. H. L. Beals, Mr. E. H. Bott, Dr. J. Bronowski, and Mr. N. H. Poole for reading and correcting the piece. So I don't know who many of these people are. Bronowski is, of course, um, his friend, the mathematician and polymath. H. L. Beals is an economic historian at the LSE and, and by that time a broadcaster at the BBC on doing public history. And then comes a really interesting piece. It's a special thanks to Mr. M. H. Dobb, and I quote, for many helpful discussions and for his detailed commentary on every part of my manuscript. He's the Cambridge economist with membership to the Communist Party of the UK. He's, he's an historian of economics, wrote on theories of surplus value. And that kind of leaves a kind of an obvious imprint on sort of this Marxist tone that everyone was reading. This was the person he was in conversation with when writing it. 
besides Bronowski and all these other people. That's interesting. It makes me wonder if there's any way of us finding out how how that their relation would have would have started, where they would have met. So I've not been able to find any papers of Rome. He's left no archives, as far as I can tell. So we have reviews. We have reviews that talk about this book as having sort of explanatory ambition of wanting to give some kind of causal account of the development of the history of economics through this Marxist analysis. And we have the author doing holidaying in near Cambridge, going to the Marshall Library to write this, and having conversations with Morris Dobb about the history of economics, someone who certainly have a particular view on how to write that history. But what can we say about the publisher? So the, the, the publisher is Faber and Faber, and this is where it sort of becomes somewhat more mysterious. So Faber and Faber is, is actually known for their poetry catalog, not for their nonfiction. It's the, the money came from beer. Yeah. So Jeffrey Faber, his family had a brewery, Strong and Company of Yorkshire, and he became director of that in uh, 1920. And after concluding his legal studies and being called to the bar, he decided to sell the directorship of the brewing company and invested all the proceeds into a publishing partnership, which eventually became Faber and Faber, even though there was only ever one Faber, which was him. But it just sounded better. And what's perhaps the kind of the fun fact of this is that it, it was on Russell Square, not far from where we're talking. We're, we're actually recording this from Gordon Square uh, in Bloomsbury. And Faber and Faber is still based near here, near the British Museum. And so they had all these connections with the Bloomsbury set, with Wolf and Friends and, and publishing uh, poetry. And they're far more successful than, than Hogarth Press, which was the, the Bloomsbury set press. And, and I think one of the claims for fame, uh, of Faber is that uh, one of their editors was the American poet T.S. Eliot. And T.S. Eliot had something to do with this book. We actually have a clip of, of Rowell talking about Eliot. Um, what Rowell says is that Eliot was important for his first book with Faber, which is a book on money. Um, but then uh, he was also, again, important in um, encouraging him to write this book on the history of economics. T.S. Eliot I knew fairly well, personally, because, uh, as I say, he was, he was my editor, actually, in Favors. He had something to do also with encouraging me to write another book on the history of economic thought, which has incidentally just come out in a new edition. I was in contact with the archivist at Faber, and it seems that the archives are closed. They're um, refurbishing their the space in which they, they're housed and, and it's a kind of project that will take several years before they open them back to the public for research but um, we had a nice chat and he, he suggested that they, there will be nothing there about distribution marketing that they didn't even keep numbers of how many copies they would sell of each edition at most there would be some information about so some editorial correspondence if there was any so at most, maybe there's something to be found in terms of the way they solicit the book or suggest that the frame of the book and comparison there. But the publisher connection seems um, a little bit barren. I was looking up in some of the journals the different advertisements that Faber has put up. One of the ones 
you know, it's just a general Faber advertising page, and it's got various other titles that Faber was publishing at the time, uh, including Renaissance Venice by J. Hale, The Assassination of Henry IV, Congo to Cape, Early Portuguese Explorers, so it's, you know, and History of Economic Thought by Eric Roll. So we get a sense of some of the books that, 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 that appear at the same time with Faber. At the same time, another, in a very different journal, in 1979, Economics and Political Weekly, um, there's an advertisement for one of Eric Roll's other books, The Uses and Abuses of Economics. Um, this is by Oxford University Press, and the other books that are advertised alongside it are, um, you know, a book, book by Samira Min, Unequal Development, a book by Ralph Miliband, of the time that he wrote it, Marxism and Politics, and Eric Rolls, The Uses and Abuses of Economics. So again, he kind of gets placed in an environment of critical thinkers. So the, it's interesting that you say that he's put alongside these critical thinkers and, um, and intellectuals, because he's, he has this... We haven't said much about him yet. Um, I think it's time now to to look a bit about a bit on on the man. So some 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 basic facts about him is that he was he was he's born in Romania, what is now Romania, in a town. And I want to get this right. He was born on first of December, nineteen o seven. In a town called No Novo Zelitsa, yeah, Novo Zelitsa near the provincial capital of uh, Chernovitz, uh, which was then uh, part of Austria, the Duchy of Bukovina. His, his childhood was spent in between that little town and uh, Vienna because came uh, the First World War and the family went to Vienna to uh, uh, seek shelter from, from the conflict. Um, he doesn't, have, doesn't seem to have that many memories from that period, and then they returned back to Novozelitsa until he came to Birmingham, which we've heard some, we've heard a bit about uh, his education at Birmingham, where he had planned to become an oil engineer, but turned out to uh, become um, and became an economist instead. So after that, about this childhood, I think he's. He he. It's a funny thing because he in the first preface he thanks his father for introducing him to political economy, and the book's dedicated to his mother, until I think the third edition, at which point his book the book is dedicated to his mother and his father, and so the father has actually a kind of an important role. And there's there are two clips from the oral history we want to share with you. Uh, one is about his father in this introduction to political economy, and the other one is about books. So let's hear those. And so there was a predisposition in our household towards England. And then my father, who had a certain amount of economic knowledge and been a banker and so on, and had written various ordinance, he was obviously very interested in England from a point of view of both economics as such, because it was, after all, for two, two centuries at least, uh, an English science. It's no longer so now. It's more of an American science, but still, it's by the way. But... And also from a business point of view, and banking and so on. I mean, all the sort of classic instruments of banking and all the classic techniques and so on were English, and he was aware of them. So there was this predisposition, and I had the same feeling, so here I am. And later on, my, my father collected books, and this was at a time when he had rather more money than he had either before or after, but during that particular period. And I took a great interest 
So very often he would send me to auctions on his behalf to buy books for him. It was great fun. And can you remember in your teenage years what particular books had a special meaning for you? Well, you must remember that until I came, I mean, I did read Shakespeare and I learned English even during those days and I read Shakespeare and other English poets in English. But my main uh, pabulum, uh, literary pabulum, was of course in German and French too, because I learned French at school and I, I subsequently learned a great deal of French and, and lived in France. But, um, but my main interests were in, in German literature, in classical German literature. I read a certain amount of English poetry and in, in English and French, of course, too, quite a lot. But German was really the basis for quite a long time until I came to England in 1925. Then, of course, it changed. So, so the the image that comes out of this is that this is someone who, you know, he's he's trained as an economist, but he's part of this sort of Central European tradition that's very literate. That is. In this oral history, he keeps talking about poets and poetry. You know, his, his wife was an English major, um, but he's always seemed to live his life near uh, near men of power and and influence, but also um, of the arts, of aesthetes, and, and 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 so it's interesting his choice to publish with Favor and Favor, which is this independent uh, publisher that is primarily known for their poetry. In terms of how the book was written. Uh, I'm just going to quote something from, from the biography. He talks about the writing of the book as it being a particularly exhilarating experience. And we know that it was written alongside his friend Bruno, um, who, was, who at the time was writing his first major book, The Poet's Defence, while he was writing uh, the history. So yeah, so Brunowski is, again, an example of someone much... Well, Roll never wrote poetry, but he appreciated people like Pronowski, who was a mathematician, but also a poet and a broadcaster. And, and in, a, in a much kind of reduced scale, I think Wuerl had some of that... I, I think he's like Zelig. You know Zelig? I had to look him up. Yeah? <laughs> because I mentioned him before, right? So there's this, yeah, there's this Woody Allen character... Oh, yeah, he just morphs into powerful people. Yeah, right? exactly. No, and, and so Roll has a bit of that because he's, he's sort of, okay, so he's, he, he's educated in Birmingham. He goes and becomes a lecturer at Hull. He gets promoted really quickly to professor, partly at, because he gets Keynes to write him a favorable letter. And maybe, maybe it wasn't so hard to become a professor at Hull at that time. I don't know. But, but then he just gets tired of doing that, takes up a, professor, uh, um, a fellowship uh, funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, goes and visits Harvard and Princeton, becomes friends with Galbraith and Samuelson. Actually, we have a clip of that. Let's, let's li listen to that. Ken Galbraith. Yes, when I got to Harvard, which was my first port of call, he had just left to go to Princeton as an assistant professor. Uh, he'd been a, whatever they call it, lecturer, I suppose, at Harvard, and he'd got, so to speak, promotion, and he went to Princeton. So I didn't see him straight away, but... I met, of course, a lot of um, others there who knew him and been contemporaries of his and uh, who really be became very, very close friends of mine. I mean, people like Paul Samuelson and various others in the Harvard and MIT faculties. 
at any rate, I did get to Princeton, either immediately after Harvard, or it may have been when I was coming back from... No, no, it was immediately after Harvard I went to Princeton, and um, to the Institute for Advanced Study, not to the university. And um, Ken was then, um, as I say, an assistant professor at the university, and we got to know him and his wife very well. We've been friends ever since. He he has this 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 fellowship. He's he's tired of writing about economics, and and suddenly the so the war is starting, and he finds himself in the U.S. and he um, becomes a civil servant. He decides to do this career. So not maybe not so unusual during the war. He ends up negotiating lend lease uh, with many others, uh, and really enjoying that life, the life of of uh, a civil servant and an advisor. And Keynes actually apparently convinces him to stay on. Uh, in in the civil service and and, and Keynes is, seems to be kind of a strange influence on his life, and so he's ends up being negotiating part of the negotiating team of the Marshall Plan, um, and then many decades later he's also the guy one of the negotiators for the European integration of the UK. He he's a member of the Bank of England at some point, he's head of the economic service of the British government at another point. He seems to be within that space of. 30 years from his first engagement in, in the Second World War till his retirement and his peership. He becomes the peer Lord Roll of Ipston in 1977. He takes all these incredibly influential roles in government. At the end of his life, he's known as being a sort of a kind of a, a super negotiator of some kind. So he's, he's 70 years old in 1977 when he becomes a peer, life peer. I think it's around that time that he retires. Um, and then he commences a new very successful career in um, in the private financial sector. Yeah. So at Warburg, um, this, I think there was merchant uh, merchant capitalists and they become investment capitalists while he was there because at the same time, his role is there when the Big Bang happens, with, which is this transformation in the city of London. So at age 80-something, he's he's in the thick of it, in the, being a banker like his father was. One of the things that he um, talks about both in his uh, oral histories uh, and in some of his biography, is well, what's the use of economics if it's if it's not for policy, if it's not for doing things in the real world? And I, I think that's a struggle that he he returns to quite a lot, which is you know is the use of you know what's going on in academic theorizing to help people make decisions in the real world? I think that's interesting because I think there's two themes that come across by uh, when you read people talking about him and him talking about himself and other people. You're right. One is this practical aspect, the sort of, and you can see that in some of his scholarship, not not all, but most of his scholarship is about seeing people in action and what decisions they make. That's his thesis is about Bolton and what and and managerial decisions. And then he has all this long and distinguished career in 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 the British government as an advisor and as a practical advisor. And then he becomes an advisor within Warburg, so that he has a, a special relationship with clients, with international clients. And and he's he basically his role at Warburg is to create these relationships with these clients because he's serving as their advisor, as special clients, uh, and he seems to be able to kind of speak in that mode. Um, and he chastises economists in the book. In the conclusion, he complains that economics of particularly of the last generation is not practical enough. And alongside that is the other th- the thing I've already mentioned that he seems to be kind of has this vision of the intellectual, of the economist as part of 
an intellectual culture, engaged with poetry and music and all these things. And he speaks of Warburg that way, of his new employee. And that's apparently why the two, I think, got Sigmund Warburg, the head of the company, one of the uh, major partners in the company, how they got on and, and how that came to be. So in all of his policy advising capacity, uh, the question is, were there many economists around? And one of the things that he says when he's negotiating the Marshall Plan and he's part of the, the setting up of the European Common Market uh, Agreement, uh, he's looking at, you know, what kind of training do different people have? So he's, he says, there were a lot of economists, but you didn't really deal with them on the basis of a common language of economic analysis. So when things are being negotiated, what's the use of economic analysis? And he's basically saying it, that's not really the point. He has an example um, about negotiating cheese between the French and the Australians. Uh, and what it comes down to is, you know, is it going to be cheddar or camembert, full stop? And the way that he describes it is there's a lot of work going on, and that's a long, a long way off from economic analysis. So the abstract theorizing that goes on in academia is of little use when you're trying to negotiate these kinds of things. That's the kind of argument you got involved in. Of course you had economic analysis when it came down to arguing about the balance of payments forecasts or what the dollar requirements would be. Um, but much of the work really was a long way off from economic analysis. Um, so that kind of links to some of his later academic publishing as well, the uses and abuses of economics, where he sort of criticizes the direction of the profession of rule in terms of being abstract and, you know, technical. And it's interesting you say that because the, the, the book, so the book goes through several editions and the conclusions, they get rewritten almost. You know, that's the one piece of the book that does get rewritten. They, they, they kind of rest on that message a lot, at most of the, the rewrites. It kind of comes back over and over again, this, this topic of politics and economics, mm -hmm. and the relationship and whether economists can say something meaningful, particularly the economists of the last generation can say something meaningful to policymakers. So that preoccupation is, is, is part of that book. It, you know, it's, it's written into it. I mean, in a way, if we look at his trajectory going from academia to public service, government official posts to private sector, it's kind of like he's trying to work out, you know, for himself what is the role of economic theorizing. He starts with this book that he writes at the very beginning of his career. No, no, actually, no. So, so he, st he starts with his the, the book is written at the end of his academic career. Okay. Right. Yeah. So that's that's interesting, and then he gets revised. Across, across the, the remainder of his career. Yeah, while he's doing, so the, 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 all the editions kind of, you know, the last edition is um, 93. The fifth edition is 1993. He's at Warburg. So he's now a banker, revising on a history of economic thought. Book. Yes. 1992, sorry. So he's lost touch with, well, has he lost touch with economics? So he writes the book and then he basically leaves economics, except that he continues to have really close friendships with people like Samuelson and Galbraith. Um, he's, he's not very close to Keynes, but he's, he still has all these connections to economics. Um, he still reads the literature. It, it seems like he does still stay very much engaged with what's being published because he keeps writing reviews throughout the 50s and 60s of other books that are coming out. Um, some of those books are in, this, in the field, in history, history of economic thought. Some of them are, are, are slightly broader. So um, 
we mentioned the review that was written on Stark's couple of books. But another one that comes to mind in 1964 is Rawls' review of uh, Meek's book on physiocracy. Um, so he's still engaged in a, in a critical intellectual environment. He's still reading Marxist thinkers. And what is the content of this review? Well, it's a very complimentary review, um, and it praises quite highly the materialistic conception of the history of, of the history of ideas. Roll also reviews another historian's work published by Princeton University Press by Miriam Camp. She wrote a book on the UK and the European economic community. Uh, she was key in the development also of Marshall Plan and um, sort of the, the development of the uh, European economic community. Uh, he reviews this book in 1965. These are policy debates that he's very much part of um, and he writes this book is this this review gets published in the economic journal D despite leaving academia in 1939 because of his friendships because also his position puts him in contact with economists he's he's never lost sight of this book the book keeps getting reissued and updated and and revised and that's that's also another of the remarkable features about it because it's not just the longevity of the book, it's the longevity of his engagement and commitment to revising and keeping the book going. And, you know, it's selling, of course, but something there that speaks about him and his interests and something that he accomplished with that book with that he cherished. I think the book contains sort of some seeds of key preoccupation that he has, so things that he will carry with him. Uh, which he wonders about. So I just quote for, um, I quote from the introduction. My main concern has been with the wider questions of economic scope and method, of the relations between economics and politics, and of the place which economic theory has occupied in social change. Just by looking at the biography that we talked about earlier, he is trying to understand what is the role of economics in, in the world. He's um, living that. Yeah, he's, he's, li he's living he's, it. He's living that problem himself. I quote again, ideas dead in one country reappear in another if the economic environment is more suitable. And then he lists some examples. There is no inevitable order, again I'm quoting, in which these influences appear. Another quote. Many writers have stressed the longevity of economic ideas, but they have generally been led to regard with contempt those who still cling to fallacies which the expert has long since dis discarded. Some, in their enthusiasm for modern developments, have looked upon past theories as imperfections steadily overcome, while others have tried to produce an apologia for earlier ideas by stressing their rightness relative to time and place. These are historiographical problems that historians of economics deal with today. And he takes a middle ground. He, he does not adopt uh, an approach which is based on either of these extremes. So he's trying to, he's trying to walk down a middle way um, of how to do history. Whether he succeeds or not, I think the except, verdict is open. Except that the addition you have is not the original one. And this is, I think, a funny answer to the question of how successful this book is or isn't, or how long-living it is, is that maybe it's not one book. Maybe there's several books. So the the... The point Werner Stark makes is that the 1938 edition is this materialistic-inspired causal account of where ideas come from. That does not come across from the quotes you just gave. Yeah, that's right. That's a middle ground. 
and that's the 1954 edition. So in the, in the 1954 edition, Rule clears out all the class analysis or the class attributions and sets out a much more tame causal story, much more agnostic causal story. What he does also in that edition is add an appraisal of Marx that is not that glowing. So he keeps the, the chapter, uh, but he now thinks Marx is a minor economist. That's quite a change from um, the first edition that we looked at. And his final judgment is, in fact, that his whole, and this is a quote, his whole economic, his whole system has proven essentially barren. The only thing that's interesting in Marxian analysis is not actually, the, it's not the economics, it's the sociology, which is the, the thing that is still, there's vestiges of it still in these later editions, this, this, the kind of a sociology of knowledge account that he still thinks is valid and the historical analysis in terms of class. But he now thinks the economics is utterly useless. Which is interesting because um, those, those original reviews that we read were predominantly um, targeting his Marxian interpretation of history. Yeah, so it starts as a Marxist history of economics and then is no longer, no more. That, that aspect gets amputated. Keith Tribe shared with us an interview that he took with Eric Rowe, and um, they discuss his Marxian views. Tribe asks, when your name is mentioned, people think of you as a one-time Marxist. And what Rowe responds is that as far as Marxism is concerned, there are traces of original sin there because my father was very interested in Marxism, although he was a banker. And then he says... Class struggle has long ceased to be a valuable analytical tool. And then one wonders, why is that? And he, what, he, what he suggests is that doesn't get you very far in a modern community anyhow. Yeah, I don't know the explanation for that. I think it's, he doesn't mention it. It's not part of, as far as I could read, I didn't notice it being part of his autobiography, or of his reflections about his life. Yes, other things to talk about. And, and I don't think any of his other work has hints of the sort of, Marxism. The editions, 38 has eight chapters, 54 has 11. So besides clearing out the Marxism and the class analysis, it adds a chapter on the American contribution with marginalists, American marginalists in Veblen, a chapter on the interwar years that includes Keynes, and then a chapter which is kind of a conclusion on political economy today. And the other further two editions kind of stay within that mode, which is adding chapters that would update the text on the latest development of economics and ending with a conclusion that was reflective of this tension that we've mentioned already about politics and economics primarily. There's always the theme. Kind of always a little bit different too, depending on, on the age, um, 1973 and 1992. But ultimately, this is the the, the main worry of of the text. And one thinks that, well, I think this is many books, uh, at least two or three very different books in character. The 38, 38 one, definitely different from 1954. And as you go on, even though he seems to be a lazy um, re-editor of his books, he makes actually very few changes in the text. Even the prefaces in the introductions that have 
Solink cosmetic changes, the fact that the book gets thicker and thicker and thicker and that you have these additional chapters, I think it changes the way you think about the history. So when you talk about the longevity of a book, I don't, I'm not sure if it's, if it's one book. I think it might be several. Another thing that makes a book successful and very readable over time is, is actually how it's written. One of the things that's very striking when you read the book is it's a very easy read. You don't struggle to, to get through the pages. And um, some of the reviewers criticise this as being, you know, full of sweeping statements and extravagant language. You know, and that is partly maybe why it's popular. Yeah, it has that quality of being interspersing very opinionated evaluations of the authors and their novelty, originality, etc. And which are very assertive and very confident and very authoritative. And really simple explanations or recountings of what those crucial canonical texts in economics say. So he's able to do that in a very... Uh, I've wondered about that because he's he's not a native speaker, although he's, he's learned English very early and you can hear you you've the listeners have heard him. He's, he has a perfectly competent English accent. I wonder if it's also the circle of friends and his wife, who was an English major, and who typed all his texts. If there's a partnership there that shapes the fact that his language is able to have this quality. I came across some of his work in a very unsuspecting place in a text by Warren Samuels, who wrote in the American Journal of Economics and Sociology a piece on Henry George's challenge to the economics profession. And Eric Roll turns up in this piece partly as sort of being representative of a Marxist condemnation of Henry George's work. But Warren Samuels mentions something which is very connected to what we're talking about uh, just now, which is the role of hyperbole in the conventional practices in economics. So Henry George was quite flamboyant in his own right, and he gets and Eric Roll um, sort of casts him down in his book. But then Warren Samuel says, "Lest we denigrate George and Julie, let us consider the hyperbole embedded in conventional practices in economics. Limiting assumptions, conclusions are drawn and extended beyond the reach permitted by those assumptions." talks about partial equilibrium solutions used as proxies for general equilibrium. So he starts talking about how in conventional economics there is, a set, there, there is a, an, an essence of hyperbole which allows the economic profession to continue. I thought that was quite an interesting link to the kind of hyperbole that, we are cri- that Roll gets criticised in terms of how he writes. Sweeping generalisations, you know, contradictory statements, counterposed to you know, the dry technical profession, which, you know, also um, uh, has a sense of hyperbole uh, as well. Do you want to read a book that's sort of bloodless, that has no... You want to read a book that has some sense of purpose and energy and engagement and that is opinionated, that has hyperbole, that has... I don't think you can I don't think you can sustain 600 plus pages which is matter of fact description it needs to have some fire and fury which brings us to one of the other most successful popular histories of economics our all-time favorite 
the worldly philosophers. Yeah. So I've written a little bit about Hellborn as worldly philosophers. I haven't excavated its origins, but I've I've thought about how it has become a genre-defining text. Now it's very hard to write, or well, for a while it was very hard to write histories of economics without considering that as a as a model. I mean, why do we love that book? Because it includes a philosopher and a madman, a parson and a stockbroker, a revolutionary and a nobleman, an aesthet, a skeptic and a tramp. Because it's history of economics almost without the economists. It's history of economics with these characters, with these, with this vividness, with the sort of novelist care and verve. And I, you know, Roll is not like that, right? He doesn't have a passion for characters like Hellburner does. But the text is kind of alive in a different way, in 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 his own kind of the voice he that he conveys, um, and I think that's that's maybe well, it's good, it's a good explanation, a possible, a multi-causal explanation for why the book kept going and kept getting readers interested, and keeps going. Yeah, print on demand. Thirty pounds, Amazon. No, that's a bad advert. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back for more the featured music is called knowing nothing by mid-air machine and our intro features paul krugman at his nobel prize banquet speech in 2008 thank you to noble media ab for giving us the permission to use the audio check out our website cetrusneverparabus.net for more information Follow us on Twitter, Cetris and Parabus, and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.